0: afternoon and welcome to the Live Poet Society where we read aloud literature in real time and chat about it. I'm your unqualified host, Hattie Rensberry. For today's episode, I am all by my lonesome, but isn't that the best time to read love poetry? Let's get into it. But first, let's go through some of the releases on the New York Times February release list that I think sound interesting. First one on this list for this month is one that I think fits our theme for the show perfectly. The title is Lives of the Wives: 5 Literary Marriages by Carmela Ciraru. Sir- wow. Ooh. Um it has a good read score of 3.6 stars and fits pretty solidly in the biography history category. So, let's read the seller description and I'll let you decide for yourself. A witty, provocative look inside the tumultuous marriages of five famous writers, illuminating the creative process as well as the role of money, fame, and power in these complex and fascinating relationships. With an ego the size of a small nation, the literary lion is powerful on the page, but a helpless kitten in daily life, dependent on his wife to fold an umbrella, answer the phone, or lick a stamp. The history of wives is largely one of silence, resilience, and forbearance. Toss in celebrity, male privilege, ruthless ambition, narcissism, misogyny, infidelity, alcoholism, and a mood disorder or two, and it's easy to understand why the marriages of so many famous writers have been stormy, short-lived, and mutually destructive. It's been my experience, as the critic and novelist Elizabeth, Har- Elizabeth Hardwick once wrote, that nobody holds a man's brutality to his wife against him. Literary wives are a unique breed, requiring a particular kind of fortitude. This one fits so well into our theme with this show, except for the fact that it's sort of more the dark side of it, at looking at these relationships of artists that are more difficult behind the scenes, especially in some of the cases in this book where these partners are artists themselves but don't have time or the emotional ability to be able to do their art and create their own writing because they're too busy taking care of their partner. So it just struck me as something that was terribly interesting um, and such a great start to this episode because we have a lot of positive relationship talk in this episode Um, about love poetry but it's also important to recognize that that's not always the case especially when it comes to things where people are working from a point of privilege um so yeah the next one is Victory City by Salman Rushdie which is actually his first book out uh, after being stabbed in August which is an interesting (laughs) bit um it's got a Goodreads score of four stars and it fits pretty solidly in the historical fiction magical realism category so Let's read the description. In the wake of an insignificant battle between two long-forgotten kingdoms in 14th century southern India, a nine-year-old girl has a divine encounter that will change the course of history. After witnessing the death of her mother, the grief-stricken Pampa Kampana becomes a vessel for a goddess who tells her that she will be instrumental in the rise of a great city called Biznaga, literally Victory City, the wonder of The world. Over the next 250 years, Pampa Campana's life becomes deeply interwoven with Bisnaga's as she attempts to make good on the task that the goddess set for her, to give women equal agency in a, patriarchal, in a patriarchal world, but all stories have a way of getting away from their creator, and as years pass, rulers come and go, battles are won and lost, and allegiances shift. Bisnaga is no exception. I found that one intriguing, and I personally really enjoy magical realism, so if that sounds some, like something that you would enjoy, well, might be time to buy a new book. The theme for this episode is with love. Not all great loves in the world have to be romantic. They can be felt through the forming of a friendship or the adoption of a pet, but today, to simplify it somewhat, we're going to go with a romantic theme as my late Valentine's gift to you. Now, we're not talking about the genre of romantic with a capital R poetry. That is for another day. Today, we're diving into a brief review of love poetry throughout history, with an emphasis on ones that are appropriate for me to read on air, and done by European authors because, geez louise, I have to narrow it down somehow. (laughs) Do you know how many love poems there are in the world? For as long as humans have been worshipping deities, our species has also been expressing devotion and affection for each other. So I don't know about you. I don't know if you're heartbroken right now or in the most loving relationship of your life, if you're experiencing unrequited love or learning to love yourself. Wherever you are, whoever you are, just know that these are for you. I don't care what your ex said about your body, about what your faults are. Know that in this moment, my voice will summon forth words written by someone who could have truly and unconditionally loved you and that you're worthy of them. Our first poem is Echo by Carol Ann Duffy. I think I was searching for treasures or stones in the clearest of pools when your face, when your face, like the moon in a well where I might wish, might well wish for the iced fire of your kiss only on water my lips where your face, where your face was reflected lovely not really there when I turned to look behind the emptying air the Emptying Air. Carol Ann Duffy, from 2009 to 2019, she was the first woman poet laureate of Great Britain in the 300 years since that post had been created. Additionally, she was the first openly LGBTQ person to hold the post, as well as the first Scottish person. Carol Ann Duffy has a reputation for spurning, overcomplicated and tedious vocabulary in her poetry, instead opting for language that many readers will understand and often she's described as dryly humorous. She's spent time throughout her career writing about political and social concerns and openly advocating for the LGBTQ community. She currently works as, as a professor of contemporary poetry and creative director of the Manchester Writing School. This poem is still relatively new, but it is easy to see where one can find her influences. Duffy has done some well-received rewritings of Greek mythology and has utilized references of it in her poems throughout her career. With the name of the poem being Echo, I think it's safe to assume that it's inspired by the myth of the nymph by the same name, and her almost lover, Narcissus. The speaker in the poem talks about empty air when they had seen someone reflected in the water, and only water on their lips when they eventually tried to kiss the one they see. Something about this feels surprising, like that splash of cold water on one's face, as if the narrator is suddenly struck by the beauty that they see, and yet don't realize that it's their own. There's your self-love poem for the day. Our next poem is Don't Go Far Off by Pablo Neruda. Don't go far off, not even for a day, because, because I don't know how to say it. A day is long, and I will be waiting for you, as in an empty station, when the trains are parked off somewhere else, asleep. Don't leave me, even for an hour, because... Then the little drops of anguish will all run together. The smoke that roams looking for a home will drift into me, choking my lost heart. Oh, may your silhouette never dissolve on the beach. May your eyelids never flutter into the empty distance. Don't leave me for a second, my dearest. Because in that moment you'll have gone so far, I'll wander mazily over all the earth, asking, Will you come back? Will you leave me here, dying? We've talked a bit before about Pablo Neruda on this show, and I will again say that his work is better in Spanish. As usual, his writing with this piece is frank and clear, yet somewhat surrealistic and dramatic. He expresses the feeling that we all feel at some point or another, fear of abandonment. Neruda implores the lover he's addressing to stay near, and even makes himself more relatable by expressing at the beginning that he doesn't know how to say it. This sort of love poem is passionate and painful, and even though the themes are relatable, we know while reading that if all of it were said in sincerity from one person to another, one may think that the person expressing those feelings comes off as too intense, but isn't that the joy of love poetry? All of the things that we can't say or don't want to say because they scare us or because they're too vulnerable, still being able to be expressed because it's not too much. Our next poem is It Is Here by Harold Pinter. What sound was that? I turn away into the shaking room. What was that sound that came in on the dark? What is this maze of light it leaves us in? What is this stance we take to turn away and then turn back? What did we hear? It was the breath we took when we first met. Listen, it is here. I'll keep it short and sweet with this love poem. For some reason it gives me the same vibes as the quintessential romance novel phrase he let out a breath he didn't realize he was holding. That fun intertwining often found when discussing love that includes realization and an unconscious response of a person's physical nature. It's so much fun, and as someone who really loves romance novels, especially contemporary ones, and the criticisms that go along with them, I found this particular poem to be particularly enjoyable. And now let's go a little further back into history. Our next poem is How Do I Love Thee by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight. For the ends of being and ideal grace, I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs. And with my childhood's faith, I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. (laughs) I love that one. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was an English poet from the Romantic Poetry Movement. Yes, Romantic with a capital R in the Victorian era. Elizabeth was raised in a family that made their money through plantations in Jamaica, although as an adult, she opposed slavery. Her father did not approve of his children marrying at all, and especially didn't approve of her relationship with her future husband, Robert Browning, and so her collection of romantic sonnets that she wrote to him during their courtship was ultimately titled Sonnets from the Portuguese, as a reference to his nickname for her, which was The Little Portuguese. I can't explain that to you. It's Victorian affections. Uh, Too far back for me to understand, I think. But she did so with a different title than, say, Love Poems for Robert, because it helped to protect her privacy as she was still living with her father at the time. This collection is considered to be some of her most well-known work, and they were even successful within her lifetime. The poem we read today is Sonnet 43 from that book, and it is clear as to why it continues to be deeply popular. Its cadence and the repetition, as well as the way that the rhythm is used to drive forward the lines, each with a different point that she makes, is very particular, and it's very satisfying to read out loud and satisfying to read quietly in your head. Not to mention, talk about one killer opening line. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It's the same phrase that we tell our younger siblings when they ask us if we love them. It's the same phrase that our parents tell us when we come home crying from school if we've been bullied. It's the same thing that our partners tell us in the vows that they make when you get married. It's the same sentiment that's deeply vulnerable because you're describing your interests in a person and the things you love most about them that speak to your soul, to them. Nothing is more terrifying. Her husband, Robert Browning, was also a poet. And unfortunately, some people attribute her success, especially the success of this book, to his influence. This is now considered to be false, and Elizabeth is held as a triumphant feminist and poet in her own right. We're going to take a real quick break. For everyone. Welcome back to the Live Poet Society. Thanks for taking that break with me. I'm your host, Hattison Rensbury. For those of you just now joining us, we just finished listening to poems by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Harold Pinter, Pablo Neruda, and Carol Ann Duffy. Now, let's get back into it. Our next poem is from Sonnet 130 and is often referred to as My Mistress's Eyes Are Nothing Like the Sun by William Shakespeare. <clears throat> My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then, her breast is done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, But no such roses see I in her cheeks, And in some perfumes is there more delight Than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know That music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare, as any she belied with false compare." Oh, Shakespeare. For some reason, Romeo and Juliet has been an enduring and exhausting example of Shakespeare's romantic poetry. For a guy who is said to have written at least 38 plays and over 150 poems in his lifetime, it is downright hilarious that Romeo and Juliet is the one we all seem to have read or seen at some point in our lives. Don't get me wrong, the 1996 film Romeo Plus Juliet is a personal favorite adaptation of mine. If you watch it, you'll know why. It has a very tongue-in-cheek approach, and, you know, there's a lot of sword sounds. We'll leave it at that. Watch the film. It's fun. And let's not forget that he's also responsible for the iconic line, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? There are entire listicles of best Shakespeare for weddings, Shakespeare's best love sonnets, Shakespeare to make the person you're pining after fall in love with you. Okay, that last one was a joke. But honestly, there's a lot, and they're all moderately different. This sonnet is fun. It talks about the lover in a way that could either be seen as disrespectful or gently teasing, depending on how you phrase it and how your tone comes out. And it brings to mind the experience of loving someone and also noting their faults. When the honeymoon experience is over, and you know all of their nasty, gross habits, but you love them anyways. (laughs) My favorite part of this poem, because it just utterly cracks me up, is, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. For me, that just is so fair. (laughs) When you love someone and you enjoy them, you enjoy the things that come out of their head, but occasionally the tone of voice may not necessarily suit your preferences for the day. It doesn't change how much you love them. It's just something else to love or tolerate. (laughs) All right. Let's get To our last poem. Often this one is titled, He's equal with the gods, that man, which is an excerpt from Sonnet 31 by Sappho. He's equal with the gods, that man, who sits across from you, face to face, close enough to sip your voice's sweetness and what excites my mind, your laughter glittering so when i see you for a moment my voice goes my tongue freezes fire delicate fire in the flesh blind stunned the sound of thunder in my ears shivering with sweat cold tremors over the skin i turn the color of dead grass and i am an inch from dying we could do an entire episode on Sappho, and you can bet that we will. But what you need to know now is that due to mythology, time, and her own prowess, this ancient poetess is the basis for some of what we now understand as LGBTQ and specifically lesbian culture. Even the word lesbian is used in the context it is now because Sappho lived on the island of Lesbos, sometimes even referred to as the 10th Muse, and described by some of the people in contemporary queer culture as the original lesbian portions of her work are thought of as passionate and sometimes maybe even a little racy the poem we just read is one of the only pieces of work that, of her work that still survives as she lived between 620 and 570 bce and surely it is one of the most loved it's been argued that she may have written this poem about a woman from a man's point of view But I think it's easy for those of us in the contemporary society, especially those of us who identify as queer or recognize that LGBTQ people have been around throughout the entirety of history, to see how she could have just been a woman writing about a woman that she's pining after. It's so clear in the subject matter and the descriptors how strongly she feels for this person. Whether it's just physical attraction or other components, she finds this individual to be utterly interesting and irresistible— And anybody that reads this poem, either to themselves or to others, and really experiences it, will see that too. That particular line, when I see you for a moment, my voice goes, my tongue freezes, fire, delicate fire in the flesh. You can see the experience of someone's face flushing when they meet someone that they perhaps have a crush on or are very romantically interested in. They can't speak. They suddenly become mute. It's too stressful to talk. They can no longer be trusted to say something that wouldn't perhaps betray their feelings. Blind, stunned, the sound of thunder in my ears. She's hearing her own heartbeat. She feels so strongly for this person that she cannot focus and then there's that first couple of lines that are so easily recognizable and such an integral part of this piece and so well done he's equal with the gods that man who sits across from you that says everything and nothing all at once (laughs) we don't know who that man is He could be that person's partner, he could be their friend, he could be a stranger. For some reason, he is sitting closer to Sappho's love interest than Sappho is, and she is consumed with jealousy and fear that she won't get to be that close, or the fear that she could become that close. And that is just... What love poetry is all about, the things that we've talked about today with these poets and with these artists, has everything to do with the fact that love poetry is an expression of being utterly vulnerable to someone. And that's why, in a lot of cases, people don't give others their love poetry, or at least if they do, they don't like for them to read it. They'll put it in a card with little red hearts on the front and they'll walk away because it's too scary to watch someone see what's in your head when you think about them. That's terrifying. It really is. The thought of them suddenly knowing everything, especially if you've written that love poem well, which I hope some of you will. I hope this inspires you to write something for someone you care about, because it can be so effective. And it can be such a loving and vulnerable gesture that we don't really get to see much anymore. Now, granted, love songs do count, and they have the added benefit of adding music. But I challenge you that this month, maybe in the next week and a half or so that we have of February, to sit down and write a love poem. I don't care who it's for. It doesn't have to be romantic love. It could be appreciative love. It could be you're a fan of someone and you write a love poem about Harry Styles. whatever suits you. Write a love poem for your cat about how they wake you up at three in the morning. Write a love poem for your partner, telling them exactly what you love about them. Take a page out of Elizabeth Bennett Browning's book. Just take the opportunity to love someone or love yourself a little bit more. All right, as we're closing up this episode, I'm gonna talk a little bit about what I've been reading and enjoying because apparently I've done quite a bit of that this month. <laughs> I recently finished Ninth House by Lee Bardugo in the audiobook format, and if you aren't using Libby or Hoopla to borrow audiobooks from your local library, then you are missing out because it's free. And because who doesn't love to support a library? (laughs) This one is a really intriguing murder mystery, dark academia, paranormal fantasy book. And I loved every single minute of it. It was dark. It had portions that were so difficult and stressful and seemed almost horror themed. And then it pulled back into more of a sort of growth moment for the character, and I just deeply enjoyed it. So if you're looking for a fantasy novel for adults, Ninth House by Lee Bardugo is a low fantasy novel that I just really was able to sink my teeth into, and the audiobook reader was fantastic. The book that I'm currently reading is Girl Waits With Gun by Amy Stewart, which is a historical fiction novel on one of the first female cops in the country. So we'll kind of see how that goes. I haven't gotten very far into it, but it seems really good and it's fun so far. The main character is witty and charming and has a lot of gumption, which I respect. <laughs> Alrighty, some other pieces that I've been enjoying this month are Tenfold More Wicked by Kate Winkler Dawson, which is a podcast. Their newest season has come out, and for true crime lovers, it's really just a well-researched, well-produced show that's done in some pretty bite-sized pieces and covers a lot of the narrative points in historical cases. These are specifically historical cases, so take that as it will. If you are a contemporary true crime person, that's well and good, but I prefer the stuff that's happened at least 80 years ago. It keeps me a little bit... More comfortable with the subject matter. Um, and then also The Happiness Lab by Dr. Lori Santos, which is a, another podcast. Their newest season uh, is based around the theme of Happiness Lessons of the Ancients, that I've really enjoyed and is not normally my kind of fair, but I find her writing style to be really fun and witty, but also relaxing and frank, which is nice because. She is a professor, and I think sometimes it's easy for people who are in academic circles to be a little dry or to take themselves too seriously. And I don't know if that's the case with her, and I think it's well done. All right. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Live Poet Society on Katie and Kay. We'll end today's episode with a love quote I so very much enjoy. Often incorrectly attributed to Jane Austen's original book version, the line comes from the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, and is as adored by fans of Matthew McFadden's performance as the infamous hand-clenching scene. And so, I'll leave you with this. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. Music for this episode included What the World Needs Now by Dionne Warwick and... How Long Will I Love You by John Bowden, Sam Sweeney, and Ben Coleman. How long will I love you As long as stars are above you Longer if I can